0: For Lean Blog Audio, I hope that'll give you something else uh, that's food for thought, something else to help you in your lean journey. Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, this is Mark Graben. Welcome to episode 158 of the podcast for September twenty-eighth, two 2012. My guest today is Art Byrne. He is the author of the new book, The Lean Turnaround, How Business Leaders Use Lean Principles to Create Value and Transform Their Company. I think Art is very well known in the lean community for his very successful run as the CEO of Wiremold, having previously worked at companies including GE and Danaher, and he's currently the operating partner at the private equity firm J.W. Childs Associates. So in this podcast, we're going to be talking about a number of things from Art's CEO perspective, um, how to use operations improvement as a business strategy why the CEO needs to be directly involved in lean transformation efforts, why stretch goals aren't demoralizing when you have the right leadership and culture in place, and many more topics, including the importance of why you need to um, not use lean to drive layoffs, why a no layoffs due to lean or no layoffs uh, commitment, is a really important part of this process. So I hope you enjoy the podcast. If you go to leanblog.org slash 158, you can find um, some additional links to the book, uh, to some videos that are referenced in the podcast, other good stuff related to Art and his work. So as always, I want to thank you for taking time to listen. Well, again, our guest is Art Byrne. Thanks for taking time to talk to us today, Art.
1: Well, thanks, Mark, for having me on. I really appreciate it.
0: So I was wondering if you can start off by you know, giving kind of the brief um, background of, of your career, the companies um, that, that you've been through. Um, most notably, you know, I think people would know you from Wiremold. Um, how that um, kind of led to the Lean success that you had um, there at Wiremold, how those companies contributed to that.
1: Right. Well, my first exposure to Lean really started back in 1982, the beginning of 1982. It's my first general manager job at General Electric. Um, <clears throat> of course, it wasn't called lean then. It was uh, we, we knew it as just-in-time or quality circles or some other term. But um, <clears throat> basically, uh, we basically just started a, a kanban system. And, and uh, between myself and I was in the lighting business group at the time, running one of the businesses there. <clears throat> and one of the supplier companies that we had was also a, a group company. Uh, we started this kanban system and. We, you know, we took my inventory from say 40 days down to around three, and my supplier, uh, partner, uh, his business eliminated all the inventory. So net, net for the group, the lighting business group, we probably went from 100 days down to three. But the surprising thing was that <clears throat> what happened after we did that that was interesting because our quality got better, our space got lower, our defects went down, our customer service was better employees were happier, all kinds of things. And that's really what got me started and got me turned on to lean. And when I left GE and went to Danaher as a group executive, uh, then not too long after I was there, a guy that used to work for me, uh, running one of my companies, George Konaseger, and I came across uh, uh, the Shinju Jitsu Company, which uh, a lot of people know of. Uh, jujitsu, of course, was was all a bunch of Toyota guys. They had all worked directly for Taiichi Ono and been implementing Lean and the Toyota group companies uh, under Ono. And he kind of pushed them out into the consulting world. And we were fortunate enough to come across them at a seminar at, run in Hartford, Connecticut back in 1987. And we begged them to come and consult and work for us. And they said, you know, we're too old. It's too far away. We don't speak any English. I that. Kind of tough We basically said, yeah, but we have great steaks and lobsters and we have golf. We have lots of great golf and they like golf. So anyway, long story short, they started working uh, with us. And in fact, we were the first clients of Shinji Jitsu in the USA and we were the only clients of Shinji Jitsu in the USA for about four years. Uh, We focused first on Jacob's Chuck and Jacob's Break, which might be stories that people know a lot about. Got tremendous results there and really learned how to run you know, Kaizen events and how to do things the way that Toyota has always done them. And so, you know, they called themselves insultants, not consultants, so they were pretty tough on us. and But, you know, we were very open-minded and wanted to learn, and so we whatever they, we decided early on, whatever they tell us to do, we're just going to do it, even if we think it's the craziest thing in the world. And a lot of times it was. And then from there, I, after I left Dan her, of course I went to Wiremold, the CEO, and we transformed Wiremold uh, over the course of about... Uh, nine and a half, ten 10 years, uh, we took the uh, enterprise value up about 2,500% from what was only about $30 million when I got there. It was sort of a declining company to we sold it uh, a little less than 10 years later for $770 million. So that was a great story, and you know, along the way, I learned a lot. And since then, I, the last 10 years or so, I've been an operating partner with J.W. Childs Associates, which is a private equity firm, a middle market size uh out of boston and so i've been transforming a number of our portfolio companies through lean as well so that's kind of the little background on me the key difference for me i think than most people that have been doing lean for a long time is that i've always done it from the effective position of a ceo i mean i i started doing this during my first general manager job so i've always looked at it um from the ceo position and from the from a business point of view what's the business implications of this, how do I improve my business, how do I improve what I'm doing with my customers, uh, was really the the broad way of, that I always looked at this, and it's the way I think most people should look at it. So that's that's a, sort of the, the quick Reader's Digest version of sort of my background on this.
0: Yeah, and you've been involved, and in, we'll come back to this later on, you've also been involved in helping healthcare organizations, correct?
1: Yeah, Yes, I have. Uh, when... Virginia Mason first got started uh, in the in the lean uh, approach. The first company they visited was Wyrmol. They came, they brought 30 people from Seattle, Washington to Hartford, Connecticut. Spent a couple of days with us. We had a great time. Uh, we both learned a lot, um, you know. And from there, they've sort of gone on. I, I think they're probably the best, uh, you know, the best at implementing lean in healthcare in the country. Uh, you know, some other good hospitals have done have done quite well as well, Theta Care and a few others, but. But uh, Virginia Mason to me stands out, and then um, one of the local hospitals here in Hartford, St. Francis. I've actually, you know, spent a lot of time uh, conducting uh, Lean Kaizen, Kaizen events at St. Francis as a kind of a volunteer, free, uh, free consultant, if you will. Um, and so I've learned a lot uh, in doing that over, you know, how does a hospital really work, and what's what, what do you need to do, and what don't you need to do? I have a, a lot of opinions on that, and you know, the opportunities in hospital are just breathtaking. You know, it's a, in fact, the opportunities in general, in my mind, in non-manufacturing companies are way bigger than in manufacturing companies because manufacturing companies have been working on some form of productivity or efficiency always for a long, long time, whereas if you get into banks, insurance companies, hospitals, other businesses like that, they haven't been doing that stuff very much at all. Their basic idea on how you how you get do better is you just you just uh, have a new computer system. And in general, what they've done for years is sort of, in my opinion, kind of automate the waste. Um, they don't change the processes. They don't change what they're doing. They just automate what it is they're doing and get it on a computer system and figure that'll solve things. And it, of course, it never does. But um, you know, the opportunities in hospitals are used, the opportunities in other non manufacturing businesses are, are very big and you know, that's really one of the key thrusts or premise of my book is that, you know, lean is not a manufacturing thing. It's something that applies to any business and any business in any industry can be turned around dramatically by applying the right approach.
0: Yeah, you one know, one thing that really struck me in the book, um, you talk about this strategy of um, actually improving the value-added work. Um, I think you, you, the phrase I wrote down is that you said, nobody thinks of this as a strategy. I mean, as opposed to you know, um, new product introductions or you know, acquisitions or other you know, financial-driven improvements, why, why do you think it is that the idea, you know, the lean concept of improving the value-added work, the value to the customer, why is that not thought of very often by CEOs?
1: Well, because most people, quite honestly, it doesn't matter what kind of industry or business you're in, they, they take the value-adding uh, for granted. You know, this is, this is sort of the concept of, well, this is the way we do things here. You know, if you if you take a, uh, let's take a manufacturing example, and and let's say that the lead time uh, to produce product A is six weeks. It's always been six weeks. We've tried everything over many periods, long period of time, and it, it always takes us six weeks to do this. So... Um, you know, you accept that as, as, the, as the standard, as the value-adding, right? And, and, and therefore, if, with that in mind, what you really wind up trying to do from your strategy point of view is how do you get, A, the customer to conform to the fact that you have a six-week lead time, and how do you overcome that particular issue other ways, like new products or expanding into new markets or other things that people traditionally think of as strategy, whereas – If instead you attacked the value-adding itself and attacked the reasons that you have a six-week lead time, and and for the most part that's generally because you have long setup times, because you run everything in a batch, because of the way you account for things and do things, Uh, if you instead attack that, you could change the dynamic of, of what you're doing. You don't have to... Stop the strategic things that you're doing. You don't have to stop trying to grow your business and stop trying to get into new markets or all this other stuff. But if you went from a six-week lead time to a two-day lead time, all the other strategic things that you're doing now, that uh, you're going to improve the ability to implement those things. You're going to have. You're going to give yourself a lot of other opportunities that you won't have if you take the value added for granted. Uh, I'll, I'll give you a quick example that happened to me years ago i was on the board of directors of a jewelry manufacturing company down in north miami beach florida and i can't even remember the name of the company at this point but um they asked me to come down and what did i think? and they were mostly making rings it was gold and precious stones that kind of thing but they were selling to sort of the middle market you know jc Penney, sears montgomery Woods, those kind of big customers and when I went there, I said, well, how long does it take you to make a ring? And they said, oh, it's, it's eight weeks. And that, that's the standard, of course, in the, in the jewelry industry. And I found out later from asking other jewelry companies that I happened to bump into after that how long it took to make a ring. And every single one of them told me, told me eight weeks. Well, I was only there about you know, a few days or a week, and we, and we set up a cell, and we could do the whole thing in two days. So th- think about how dramatic that is. We changed the value-adding from an eight-week lead time to a two-day lead time. Um, You know, your responsiveness to the customer, everything else changes when you do that. And so, you know, when you ignore that or you accept that it takes eight weeks to do the value-adding, you limit your strategic horizons. And if you take the whole thing a step further, if that company or a company like that said, well, we need to go out and get a new manufacturing guy, you know, one of the specifications that they would put on their list would be he should have some jewelry manufacturing experience. And so any guy they're going to talk to, he already knows that it takes eight weeks to make a ring. And so what are the chances that are going to get to two days? Zero, pretty much. I mean, they're just going to stay at eight weeks and and struggle with the mess that that entails. So focusing on value-adding opens up tremendous opportunities.
0: What that mindset you talked about of, you know, a a variation of it's always been this way, therefore it must be with, you know, say customer lead times, you know, it reminds me of, you know, what the discussion you often have with uh, machine changeover times. Well, it takes eight hours, uh, therefore it has to. Or maybe more importantly in hospitals, you know, X percent of patients get infections. It's just bound to happen. Uh, talk. I mean, about the struggle of trying to help convince people that um, you know some you know that that higher level of performance, something closer to perfection, is is even possible. How do you? What, what's your experience in having that discussion?
1: Well, I, I I think it's it's a very simple thing. If you think you can, or you think you can't, you're going to be right. Think about that. If I think I can't eliminate infections in hospitals. And that's the premise I start with. I'm always going to be right about that. I never will eliminate them all. If, on the other hand, I'm determined to do that and I set my premise at zero infections, I at least have a shot at it, and and I'm probably going to be successful over time. So it's you know people shut out the opportunities up front by deciding that this this is impossible, um, and and so they don't, they don't do it, um, and it's it's really as simple as that. And I think you know, setting stretch goals for your organization, to me, um, you know, t- t- shows your respect for the organization, shows the respect for what your people can do, whereas most most people in management positions, however, when, when I try and push them to stretch goals, they'll always say, oh, well, we don't want to give people stretch goals that they don't think they can do because that will discourage them and demoralize them, but you know think think about somebody our, our goal at wire was a 50% reduction in defects every year the guy who doesn't want to set a stretch goal um, he's going to set a reduction in defects of 5% every year so let's say that that guy beats his target he, he beats it by double he does 10% reduction in defects this year fantastic over his target and we miss ours. Our, our average at YMO was sort of like a 42% reduction in defects over a long period of time. And you have to say, well, wait a minute. You, miss, I missed my goal. He beat his goal. But I'm going to kill the guy. right? I'm going to kill him because my goal was 50%, so I did 40% reduction in defects. His goal was 5 He did 10 He's way behind my reduction in defect rate just because he set out a low goal. He set out to, to fail, really. Um you know, it's it's kind of like if you if you wanted to reduce setup time um, in, in, a, in a factory or in a hospital or operating room or whatever. And you said, I want to go from three hours to two hours. And the other guy said, I want to go from three hours to three minutes. Well the, well, the guy who sets the three minute target and gets there, he's going to kill the other guy over time. It's just, you know, it's what are you what's your ambition? What are you trying to do? I think if you look at it always from a business point of view, you know, what you're really trying to do for your business is, you know, you're trying to deliver more value to your customer than your competitor can. And over time, that's what's going to improve the value of your organization and the value for all your stakeholders and your employees. Everything's going to improve if you do that. I, I always like to use the phrase uh, productivity equals wealth. And that's true. Historically, that's true for companies or countries or whatever. I mean, think about the Industrial Revolution. Think about why the United States is such a powerful nation. It's really because we've had tremendous productivity gains in, in all kinds of areas over a very long period of time. You know, and so when you look at that, you know, Lean and the, the philosophy of Lean and the tools of Lean is probably the greatest uh, wealth creator of all time. It's just that we get it twisted around and we think of it as a bunch of tools, not as something that will allow me to deliver better value to my customer. We just think of it as, well, I want to do it because I can cut my headcount, or I want to do it because I can cut my setup time or I can can reduce my inventory or something like that. We're not looking at it as a business thing most of the time. Mm -hmm. I think that's a tragedy, really.
0: And um, you you talk about... um... Getting pretty deeply involved in, in your experience as a CEO of, of getting into um, you know the details of kaizen events for setup reduction for machines um, right. is when you give that advice to other CEOs to get involved at that level of detail um, is it is it you know, I'm curious to hear how you describe it to, um, to you know trying to convince those CEOs why they should do it other than increasing the value of their organization and meeting customer needs is it about learning the details of lean is it about providing that leadership of those points you're talking about, of you know, not allowing stretch goals to be demoralizing because you didn't quite get there. What, what are the, the, the things when you say a leader, the CEO can't just write a memo. Um, what, what are, what are those aspects of getting involved that deeply?
1: Well, I, I think that, you know, to be successful at making a lean transformation, if you will, or lean turnaround, um, you know, you have to have, to me, you have to have sort of three things present to start with. First of all, you have to see lean as your strategy. It's not a bunch of tools. It's strategic. It's a very strategic thing, and you have to see it that way and understand that that's what you're trying to do. Uh, and you're trying to, you know, improve your value-adding activities so that you can deliver more value to your customer. That's the strategic part of it. The second thing you need to needs to be present is that the, the leader, the CEO, or plant manager, or division manager, or hospital manager, or whoever, they have to lead it in an out-front, hands-on way. They have to set the stretch goals. They have to push people. They have to always be encouraging them and, and, and telling them why we want to do this and what are we trying to do here. Uh, and if they're not doing it and they're not seeing, if they just send a memo and let somebody else do it, then no one believes it's real and, and not much will happen. And when it starts to fall backwards, if the CEO isn't pushing it forward again and getting it back on track, Then it will always go backwards. Um, And then the third thing that has to be present is you have to understand that, you know, lean is really, making a lean uh, turnaround is really all about people. The thing that you're trying to transform is your people. You know, if your people think that it takes three hours to set up this machine and it has for the last 20 years and there's nothing that can be done, and you allow that to continue, um, then you didn't really lead them. If, on the other hand, you show them and help them and get that set up from three hours down to one minute, you know, everybody feels pretty good about that. Everybody's pretty excited about that. And, you know, they look at you quite differently and, you know, they say, okay, what do you want me to do next? You know, okay, we just went from three hours to one minute. That was cool. Now, now what are we going to do? And so the leader has to be the guy that's sort of always pushing that next thing, the next hurdle, the next challenge, if you will. And I always think that that's the most rewarding thing for a leader is when you challenge somebody to do something that they think is impossible, and then you help them and show them how to do it, and then they do it. They feel really good about themselves, and it's really nice to watch that. Yeah, it's very rewarding.
0: And then when you talk about you know the, the taking care of people or, or focusing on people. Um, you talked about the wealth being created by productivity, and um, i 'm trying to remember if this was uh, wire mold you were writing about um, some of the things that were done to share that wealth with the employees can right, well, we, right?
1: we we tried to share that a couple of ways we had <clears throat> we we had a, a profit sharing plan that everybody participated in on an equalized basis uh, for the short term, and then we really encouraged all of our employees to be in the 401 k plan because in the 401k plan, we matched their contribution with company stocks. So that was sort of their long-term plan, if you will. And we, were, we weren't a public company at the time, we were private, but you know, at the end of the day, when we got this huge gain in, in uh, enterprise value, the nice thing was is that the employees through the 401k plan were the biggest shareholder, and therefore they shared in the most, the, the biggest share of the wealth that was created. Which is exactly what we intended. Uh, but you know, w- when you get everybody participating, everybody giving ideas, and everybody particip- you know, gaining from, from what you're doing, uh, you know, it, it, it kind of multiplies. It's sort of most companies, you know, all their ideas and key things they're going to do are going to come from maybe the top 20 or 30 people. But if you've got 1,500 employees and you can tap into the brains of all 1,500, then again, you're going to multiply what you can do. And so understanding that and understanding that as you make a lean transformation, the best ideas on how to improve the value-adding will always come from the people that are doing the work. <clears throat> and if you listen to that and implement that, you're going to be able to go further and faster. But most people seem to miss that stuff
0: somehow. Yeah. Well, and was there also um, an explicit, some some form of a no layoffs commitment that was made?
1: Right. We always, we, it's, it's hard to do Kaizen if you don't have a you know, a no layoff promise uh, as a result of the Kaizen. In other words, if I do a Kaizen this week and I can go from 10 people down to three to do the same work, um, and plus I can shorten the space and lead time and inventory and a bunch of other things. But say I go from 10 people to three, and my first action next week is to lay the seven people off that I don't need anymore. And then the week after I want to do another Kaizen, what do you think? What kind of cooperation do you think I'm going to get from anybody? So, I mean, it just most of this stuff is just common sense, and that, that's something that makes common sense.
0: Yeah. Um, one other thing you, you wrote about, this comes back again, I think, to people in leadership, creating a culture where it's okay to fail in, in the context of trying to do Kaizen. Can you talk about that a little bit?
1: Yeah. Well, I, I think, you know, you, you always learn from, from trying to do things. And one of my Japanese uh, senseis used to always tell me, he said, Burnson, if you don't try something, no knowledge can visit you. And I always thought that that was pretty profound. And, and so, you know, I used to encourage particularly our younger product development engineers that how come you guys aren't failing more? Why, you know, I don't, don't see failures. I'd like to see you fail some more. And at first they thought I was a little nutty, but but then they sort of got the idea that it's okay They have a lot of small failures. What we don't want you to do is to save up and have, when you do fail, you have a really big failure that can sink the company. And and so trying to create an environment where as long as you're trying, we're not going to ding you for failing. We're going to encourage you to try again. And that's very opposite the sort of traditional command and control environment where if something goes wrong, the first question is who? Who did that? Let's fire that guy. And, you know, it, it's, that creates an environment of fear. And it's very hard to get much gains and move forward in an organization where everybody is afraid of trying something because they might fail and might get fired. So you, you really just have to create the opposite of that if you want everybody to participate. And because people are the most important thing here and you have to respect their ideas and implement them, but you have to
0: create that kind of environment I think. Yeah. Now, um, last question and maybe you know, I'm I'm asking you to generalize too much, but you know, with your experience in healthcare, I mean, what, what are your perceptions of healthcare CEOs as opposed to manufacturing and and industry CEOs in terms of their willingness to get involved the way that that you've recommended?
1: Well, the the ones that have gotten involved the way I recommend, uh, Gary Kaplan at uh, Virginia Mason, for example, mm-hmm. have had tremendous success, and the organizations look to them for the leadership and then push to the next level. Other other CEOs are just like a lot of the manufacturing CEOs, whereas, okay, yeah, well, this sounds like a good idea, but you know, I'm just so busy, I can't be doing that stuff. I'm I'm too busy. I I, I have to delegate this stuff and you know it's really hard to get CEOs in healthcare or non-healthcare involved but healthcare has you know has tremendous opportunities i you know it's i, I when, so, and almost every Kaizen i've ever done in the hospital i get the team together the first day and they say we're going to work on this particular problem and i say okay now let's go through and and let, tell me what's the biggest issue you have here and almost 100% of the time all the hands go up and they say it's the doctors. And you say, oh, goodness, that's, that's amazing. So but look, you know, we got a hospital here, and the, the one that I've spent the most time in, about 5,000 employees, and only 500 of them are doctors. And so I always would say, well, look, let's not worry about the doctors. Let's worry about making what the other 4,500 people do way more efficient, and I can pretty much guarantee you I can get the doctors to come along and do whatever you need them to do, and they will. And that's always been the case, but nobody ever thinks of it that way. Because, you know, hospitals are a tremendous silo operations. I mean, there's there's very few places that are as big of silo operations as hospitals. And and if you don't have leadership to try and change that, it's very difficult to do. Um, And yet, you know, if you think of a hospital, it it has natural value streams. For example, anything related to the heart—you know—in a 5,000-person hospital, it's probably a five or six hundred million-dollar business. I'd be shocked if heart-related things wasn't really something like a hundred and twenty-five million-dollar business all by itself. And maybe you have a business called—I would call it bones—but you know, or babies, or whatever. But you, you understand what I'm saying? The value streams that exist in the hospital. And, for example, I did a Kaizen at St. Francis, and, you know, it was, it was creating a discharge policy for the cardiac care floor, which is the floor where patients that had open-heart surgery went to a recovery. They didn't have a discharge policy, so we created one. And, you know, I told, I said, look, what I want you to do is as soon as the person arrives on the floor, I want you to set a day and an hour of the day when that person's going to go home. And then I want you to monitor this and, and, you know, track how how close to our targets and estimates we're hitting and how we're doing. And of course, at first they all say, oh, you can't do that, blah, 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 blah. But then when you ask the question, well, what is it that they have to do? uh, What are the things that we want to track every day that they have to do to go home? And And in that particular case, there was only two things. They had to walk and they had to pee. And you know, I mean, really, it was, and it, and the, the reality was, it's pretty damn predictable when they could go home. But because there was no discharge policy, that you know, they got discharged at, at the shift change to the doctors later in the day. Then they had no ride home, and then so you had them through dinner, and then you had them into the night, and and new uh, entrance into the ward you couldn't come in because you were cl- clogging up with the bed, uh, clogging it up, clogging up a bed that was going to free up at seven o'clock or eight o'clock at night, and you're going to be empty all night. And so we created this discharge policy, we created the whole thing. And then when you went to say, okay, now who's going to monitor this? Well, gee, there was cardiac surgeons, there were cardiac PAs, there were cardiac nurses, and then there were the cardiologists. So you got four separate groups, four separate silos, but nobody was in charge of something like this. So if you had a value stream leader or somebody who could manage and run that kind of thing, the gains for hospitals would be astronomical. But unfortunately silo approach and the silo mentality uh, makes it very very hard to do
0: well there's so much opportunity and thankfully you know there's some organizations like you mentioned virginia mason and and others who um are getting great advice from uh people like yourself and there's a lot of great advice in um your book the lean turnaround um as, as you were saying you know about the thinking that you, uh, you know, the stories that you tell that illustrate that thinking and, and the experience that you share and the advice you have uh, for people. Um, highly recommended. Um, book is pretty widely available um, from McGraw-Hill, I'm sure, on Amazon and all the other um, usual places. Um, Art, do you have any final thoughts for the listeners or advice or anything else that you'd like to say as we close?
1: Um, well, my only thought or hope and the reason I wrote the book in the first place is that I was trying to provide a roadmap for people to be able to make a lean turnaround, to improve the business dramatically, uh, by following the steps that we outline in the book, and uh, you know, if I can get, you know, another hundred, two hundred people to have a really great success, that would be the the, the satisfaction for me because I just see us, uh, you know, lean's been around a long time. A lot of companies have tried, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, but. The number that are really successful and have really done this the right way and have looked at it as a strategy and a business thing, not as a grump bunch of tools, is quite limited, I think. And so I, I'm just trying to add to the pile and hope that more and more people can understand what this is all about and, and what what huge opportunities that they have uh, from doing it. You know, if you just look at wire mold increasing its, uh, its enterprise value by 2,500% over 10 years, and, you know, if you, if you told a CEO that if you followed this approach, you could do the same thing, and he, and he said, well, I'm not really interested. I'm pretty busy right now. You know, and to me, he's in the wrong job. Why is he in that job? What's he doing? And so all I'm trying to do with the book and, and all is to sort of pass on. I've been doing this from the CEO position for over 30 years. I've learned a lot, and I was just trying to pass on the knowledge uh, uh, that I've gained so that hopefully some other people can be successful.
0: Yeah, well, and thank you for doing that. Um, Thank you for uh, writing the book and for taking time to tell just a little bit about it here on the podcast. I really appreciate it, Art.
1: Okay, well, thank you for having me, and uh, take care. All right, thanks.
0: Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org.